You're listening to The Revealer Podcast, where we explore how religion shapes our culture and our communities. Produced by the Center for Religion and Media at NYU and hosted by Dr. Brett Crutch. Each month, we sit down with guests to discuss the role religion plays in people's lives, in our politics, and throughout our world. Welcome to the first episode of The Revealer Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Brett Crutch. Today, we're discussing the current state of the Catholic Church sex abuse crisis. But before we dive in, let me say a bit about this podcast since this is our first episode. The Revealer Podcast is an extension of the online monthly magazine, also called The Revealer, published by the Center for Religion and Media at NYU. Each episode of our podcast will give us the opportunity to explore topics we cover in the magazine in a more conversational way. I'm the editor of the magazine, and I'm incredibly excited to have conversations with fascinating people about religion and society. We hope you, our listeners, will be part of the conversation and reach out with your thoughts about what we discuss. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss any of our episodes. We'll release one new episode each month, and we'll say more at the end about how you can get in touch with us. So let's get to today's topic. Last month, The Revealer magazine published a special issue called Religion and Sex Abuse Within and Beyond the Catholic Church. You can check it out at therevealer.org. I'm joined today by Dr. Brian Kleitz from Case Western Reserve University, who has interviewed more than 70 survivors of sex abuse at the hands of Catholic religious leaders. Welcome, Brian. Hi, Brett. Uh, Thanks for having me on the show. Thank you. So, Brian, you wrote a fascinating article for us called The Problem with Spotlights, Rethinking Our Response to Clergy Sexual Abuse. That's about what you've learned from survivors about the intense media attention some have gotten when they came forward. Uh, I'd love to ask you what you mean by the problem with spotlights. You know, based on all the survivors you've talked to, what are some of your concerns about how the media and American public has dealt with news of clergy sexual abuse? I'm talking about spotlights in the piece with a lowercase s. So I mean a a more general uh, trend we have of really shining an intense uh, media beam and public focus scrutiny on survivors during discrete and really uh, brief moments uh, over the last 35 years. And then almost as quickly um, yanking that spotlight, redirecting it towards another issue, whether it be politics or foreign affairs, and then acting surprised as a culture, as a society, um, the next time that an abuse scandal erupts in a new region. Um, But so the problem here, right, is not the media itself, but rather the pace of the media cycle and kind of the habits of consumption we formed uh, in America and in the West more broadly where we've got this breakneck speed. It's not just you know Moore's Law in the digital age. There seems to be a, a doubling uh, of the speed and pace of reporting news media every couple of years, too. Um, and social media, we've seen Twitter and whatnot shift that dramatically. So I think uh, the problem is that we don't stick with them. These communities come forward, especially if there are new allegations in a new region. Um, the media spotlight comes to their area, the, the television cameras and microphones get shoved in their face. They muster up a lot of courage. They speak out. Some of them are speaking out for the first time in their life. They haven't told their spouse, their children, their parents if they're still living. Um, and so this is, this is really can be scarring for them. It is it's an enormous turning point in their life for better or worse. And they take an enormous amount of risk. And as a society, we don't reward that risk. Quite, quite the opposite. We 
forget about them. And then I think we, we risk re-victimizing the survivors who have already come forward when we act so shocked and scandalized uh, when it's reported in a new city or diocese. Right. So that's very helpful. So one of the things you're saying makes me think about one of the heartbreaking things I learned from reading your article, which is that you report that many relationships fall apart when survivors of clergy abuse have come forward, that, you know, it's not uncommon for some marriages to dissolve or relationships between parents and children to become strained or between friends and neighbors. Can you help us understand why that happens? Why do relationships sometimes become more fragile when survivors of clergy abuse speak out publicly? Yeah, for me, the most difficult part of this, uh, this research project is actually generalizing. And it's, it's a scholar's responsibility to kind of step back and observe trends and then communicate those clearly and sometimes even to theorize. But I do want to say here, and I'll probably say it again today, that each and every survivor's experience, uh, not just of abuse, but of surviving and of recovering, um, is distinctive. And so, you know, when I make these generalizations, take them with a grain of salt, because none of them fit an individual survivor perfectly. Um, but I think the reasons why these relationships, uh, which were often strong or didn't have cracks or problems beforehand, why they can dissolve in the wake of a survivor coming forward, has to do with you know the broader the circumstances. Uh, so if, as we just talked about, it's the first time a survivor is talking about this, that can make um, their spouse in particular feel betrayed. It can open up issues mm. of trust. Like, why did you keep that secret? Why didn't you sure. tell me? And you know, again, I don't want to overgeneralize, but I find this to be a bigger problem for female survivors of abuse who are in a, a heterosexual marriage now, and uh, you know their male partner will say, well. I can't believe you didn't tell me you were raped um, mm. as a child. And I don't think it's as simple or as facile as, as, as jealousy or patriarchal possessiveness. But I do think there's, there's something there that seems to be very engendered, where instead of having an initial um, and overwhelmingly compassionate response, it opens up these questions of suspicion and of uh, fidelity and loyalty um, in ways that are really insidious and can be painful for everyone involved. So there's that one element. If you're saying it for the first time, almost everyone who felt they, they knew you, they understood you, they're going to look at you differently. Um, they have trouble looking at you the same afterwards and, and not having that be the first thing you think of. Hmm. And so I think, you know, it's just, it's one of these um, labels that we slap onto people um, after we find out that they were a victim of sexual assault. And then it's hard and very unconscious, I think, uh, not, to, not to foreground that in the rest of our interactions with them. So that causes problems in its own. Um, a, more pro a more widespread and common uh, fragility that becomes uh, revealed after a survivor comes forward is being ostracized by neighbors, friends, and if they're still in the church, by the rest of the parishioners, mm -hmm. uh, by the other Catholics in their, in their local community. And I think um, survivors often feel betrayed. I think their neighbors and friends feel betrayed too. And, and it, again, depends on circumstances. If the priest is still living and is still beloved, um, this, can, this can really create strong and immediate tension. Um, if it's a priest that's, that's died, as many of them have now, or that's retired or now living in another area, then often it plays out in, you know, why, why don't you love your church more? Why are you hmm. being so public? Why do you want attention? Um, suspicion of motives. So survivors will often get accused of only being interested in money when in hmm. fact um, I've learned that that's often the last thing they're thinking of. 
Um, but it, again, it, you know, our litigious society, that's one of the elements of the broader scandal that gets reported in, in, on front page news. Um, and then when survivors do choose to litigate, and especially in the 1980s, 90s, and early aughts, uh, survivors had to pay for their own um, litigation. So they weren't being offered uh, free representation by well-established attorneys as often as the case now. And so a lot of the families I spoke to um, who came forward in the 1980s and 90s, they actually went into personal financial debt and, and often uh, six-figure debt or multiples of their annual income. And that, yeah. that'll produce stress on any marriage or any family. Um, and the last kind of reason I think this happens is family feuds. So if the, the family was already maybe the, the two sides of a relationship or marriage or extended family, more Catholic and less Catholic or more Catholic and non-Catholic, um, this can again raise questions of why a survivor has been motivated to come forward and can cause a lot of, a lot of friction with the in-laws and other relatives. So what's sticking out to me as I'm hearing you go through these different reasons is sort of cultural changes that aren't necessarily specific to the Catholic Church. I mean, some of them are when you describe, you know, divisions that happen among friends and neighbors when they feel torn between a priest that they love and a neighbor or friend or family member who they also love. But I often think that when we read about and hear discussions about the sex abuse crisis in the Catholic Church, people become angry, rightfully, at the Church and what the Church should and should not be doing to improve the situation. But it sounds like from you, uh, what I really like, part of what you're saying, is that actually all of us could have a role in improving the cultural situation for survivors of clergy abuse. So I'm wondering if that, if that sounds right to you, and if so, um, are there specific things that all of us, regardless of if we're Catholic or not, uh, that all of us could do to better support uh, survivors of clergy abuse? Absolutely. I mean, um, I would like to come back maybe later to the question of, of what's distinctively Catholic or what's different about Catholic clergy sure. sexual abuse than other forms of sexual assault. But, but as I said in the piece, you know, I think survivors carry a certain set of expectations now post Me Too more than ever about um, society kind of accepting them, uh, not questioning their victimhood, not immediately acting suspicious um, the allegations, but instead beginning from a place of trust and compassion. Um, but, uh, you know, what I try to argue in the piece and what you just uh, said very nicely is that sexual assault more broadly happens everywhere. And even child sexual assault is tragically endemic in American society. And so I think we have a tendency to pretend to imagine, uh, perhaps for our own psychological safety and well-being, that child sexual abuse only happens other places. And even the Pennsylvania grand jury, um, you know, kind of foregrounds their 2018 report by saying this, that now we know it happens everywhere. And I think part of what they mean there is that, uh, you know, it's really time for us as a society to address the issue of child sexual assault and to recognize it, especially in our own communities, our own families, our own schools. Um, so this is by no means just a Catholic problem. And I think the support that Catholic survivors and clergy sexual abuse survivors need more broadly has to come from, from a broader group, not just from other Catholics. Great. So, well, then, you know, you've raised this point. So then what is specific to 
um, the issue of, of survivors of clergy sexual abuse that maybe differentiates them from uh, survivors of sexual abuse or survivors of, of childhood sexual abuse? So there are two sides of that, and, and one is the actual abuse itself. So frequently abuse occur, occurred in uh, church facilities. So it could be at a retreat house, in the parish, in the rectory um, where the priest lives. So uh, there's that. There's also a lot of abuse that was explicitly sacramental, where sacred objects like crucifixes were employed, where prayers were chanted or mm -hmm. sung, or where holy water was used. Um, and so that has a, a specific religious resonance. Uh, the way that survivors were impacted by the abuse um, as children, you know, it shattered. I, I talk about it as soul murder, which is a word that a number of the survivors I've, I've interviewed um, taught me about. And, you know, the soul murder does actually have a longer legacy, a secular legacy in, in psychoanalysis, but Catholic survivors use it to mean uh, that their social world was shattered as it is for all child sex abuse victims, but also their spiritual world. Hmm. And so in Catholic theology, uh, the priest acts in the mass, especially when the priest is consecrating the Eucharist, the host, uh, the body of Christ, uh, in persona Christi, which means as Christ, not just as a symbolic Christ, but as God in that moment. Um, and this is reflected in a different way theologically by the way that Catholics call their priests father. Um, and so I think here we, we have the two main elements, which are really that the priest has a divine status in Catholicism, and also that there's this familial intimacy, which does exist in certain other religious groups, but is not uniformly um, as pervasive as it is in American Catholic life. And so to the extent that Catholic survivors are able to make analogies or talk about their abuse with other survivors, it's often with incest survivors, actually, hmm. um, who were hurt by their, their actual biological family or adopted right. family. Um, but when I, when I reflect on that and think about your last two questions together here, it seems to me that what survivors need is that kind of intimate community. They need, they need friends, they need mm. close relatives and community members who are willing to unconditionally accept them and are able to move on, in this case spiritually, but I think also in the social relationships and the marriages and parenting dynamics we just talked about, they're able to move beyond that initial um, impetus we all have to, to, to foreground their status as only uh, an abuse victim and really to see them again as a more holistic person and as a survivor. That's very helpful. And, you know, I'm, I'm, as you were speaking, I became stuck on one thing that you said about the differences between clergy abuse and other forms of abuse, and, and that was that many survivors report that um, priests and others would use, uh, you know, holy water or other sacramental objects as part of the abuse. Is there a way that survivors or that you make sense of why priests would include that as part of their abuse patterns? Yeah, I don't like to um, kind of typologize abuse. Um, to say, in other words, that this form of sexual assault was more severe than that form or that a survivor who was assaulted hundreds of times is necessarily more deeply affected than a survivor who was assaulted twice. Um, and this question can, can risk going in that direction. Um, but I do think survivors who were sacramentally abused, which is a term I use and I've seen some other scholars use it, 
to talk about what you just asked about, that when, when ritual objects, when ritual music and prayers are, are involved in the abuse itself, there's a way in which they do form sub-communities within and among survivors and are able to talk to one another about their spirituality in a, in a different way. Um, I th think they face, in general, a, a steeper hill, uh, a, a steeper mm -hmm. climb in terms of recovering a sense of spirituality um, and certainly, um, on the whole, those survivors are less likely to return to the Catholic Church as we traditionally recognize it. Um, and, and, you know, there are, there are survivors in Boston, since Boston's part of the, the Revealer article I wrote, um, who talk openly about how they tried to go back to Mass. I'm thinking here of two male survivors in particular, and they vomited every time wow. they would step inside a church. And finally... Wow. The, the, the bishops in Boston offered a healing mass and the survivors tried yet again to go and they made it almost to the Eucharist. And then something about that, that pivotal central moment when the host is consecrated and the priest is acting as Christ again caused them to have this very embodied reaction. So I, you know, I think if there are listeners who have experienced trauma, um, they understand how powerful and unpredictable triggers can be. Mm -hmm. And that that kind of triggering moment can cause a not just some emotional or psychological response, but an embodied response that is so strong you're unable to, to move beyond it. I mean, it can be paralyzing or it can, can cause you to be sick as it did for them. And so I think that's a challenge that survivors of ritual abuse in particular, or survivors who maybe prayers weren't involved, but it was in a specific uh, part of a church like the confessional, they, they really have trouble with that space that for so many other Catholics remains sacred. And so that's another tension. Um, I think Catholics who have not met survivors, haven't spoken to them, haven't found them in their own families and communities, fail to appreciate how triggering the church itself, the parish itself can be for those survivors to return to. Thank you. That's very helpful. So I guess since we've, we've talked sort of, you know, about broader cultural things that, um, uh, would be helpful if we changed to help survivors. And now you've brought us in more to specifics with the Catholic Church. What do you think, you know, this has been a topic for many years now, especially since the Boston Globe Spotlight team did their reporting. But even before that, survivors were trying to get this in the news. At this point in 2020, what would you say the Catholic Church needs to be doing as an institution to better support survivors? So in that question, the, as an institution is really important um, because it gets to the heart of how Catholics define church. And this is a debate among survivors. So if when we say church, we mean the hierarchy, the institution, then there's one set of improvements. But I think most survivors think of the church as the people of God, which is a term that comes out of Vatican II in the 1960s. Um, that means the entirety of Catholic faithful, not just ordained uh, men, but also uh, ordained women, nuns, and and lay people. Um, but we've kind of talked about what lay persons can do. So, so you're asking a great question. What can the church do? This will depend on the community. I know survivors who are still very close to a priest. It's it's uh, not the priest that abused them, and usually not their parish priest, but a priest they maybe met in college or later in life, or a friend introduced them to. And even some survivors who are really close to and love, feel intense love for their bishop. Um, which, which has always struck me as kind of an impossible love, but, but it's what I observe. It's what they, they show and tell me. Um, so I think the first thing the institutional church can do is 
to encourage, if not require, all of its, uh, especially male uh, priesthood, to embrace survivors unconditionally. I mean, too often, priests, um, whether they're accused or uh, indirectly involved or don't see themselves as directly involved in, at all, uh, priests get defensive. They, you know, I was in a, a meeting in a, in a local Cleveland parish last week where they, um, it's a predominantly African-American parish, and they've started just now in 2020 to come to terms with what Boston 2002 and Pennsylvania 2018 might mean here locally for them. You know, are there black survivors in their parish? And there are. They finally asked the question, are there any? And, and you know, six people came forward uh, rather quickly. Um, but they're, they're struggling with it. And, and the priest was, you know, who I didn't expect to be in the room uh, at this this conversation was just constantly defensive. And I think he, he actually meant very well and he wants to support survivors, but he also hears these stories as a, an attack on the priesthood, hmm. an attack on the clerical state. And, and part of that gets wrapped up in the various solutions that both survivors and non-survivors advocate for. So asking for a married priesthood, saying that the fact that the priests are all men is a problem, blaming homosexuality. There are a slate here of, of tangential issues that some survivors, but more often non-survivors, offer up as a kind of silver bullet solution, a cure-all for clergy sexual abuse, which I don't think would fix it. But I think what priests and the church need to do are, are have more formal structures to ensure that survivors are not denied. In the piece, I talk a little bit about revictimization, which is a term that survivors use to describe experiences that hurt them as deeply and, and only are the only experiences that hurt them as deeply as the abuse itself. And the main one here, I talk a little bit about how, how we can all do this through our, our shifting of the spotlight, but the main way that survivors use that term revictimization is to talk about priests who deny their pain, who start that conversation when they come forward as uh, from a place of distrust or of skepticism rather than from a place of pastoral compassion. So somewhere along the way, Catholic theology, uh, I think very clearly has elevated the priests above parishioners and elevated the well-being of the institution of the priesthood above mm. the well-being of all of its, uh, all the parishioners and especially the children. Um, and so that clericalism continues. And, and I'm not a theologian, so I don't, I don't have um, cures to suggest for how we can overcome clericalism short of undoing it. But you know, there's been a lot of op-eds in that strand. There was a, a huge one in the Atlantic uh, about a year ago. And my take is that it doesn't really sound like Catholicism without the priesthood. I mean, it, it, hmm. it, there are a lot of churches that already do that, and some survivors go to and find meaning. So I think the church is, is uncomfortable with that. The, the, the Vatican, the Pope um, feel that their hands are tied to some extent. There are a lot of other ways politically those hands are tied, but... I think they worry that addressing this sincerely will require such a change to the church that it will undo the um, remaining qualities that make Catholicism unique and mystical um, or magical for its, for its practitioners. And so I think they're scared of making these changes. Hmm. Well, thank you. I appreciate everything you've had to say. I think that the work you're doing is incredibly important 
And uh, I understand you're working on a book based on all your interviews with survivors. So I'm sure that there will be many people interested in reading your book uh, and learning more about what you have to say about this important topic that you've made clear is important for all of us to, to take seriously. So that's all the time we have for today's conversation. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Brian Kleitz. If you'd like to explore more on this topic, please check out therevealer.org and make sure you subscribe to our podcast. I'm Dr. Brett Crutch. I hope you'll join us for our second episode next month. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Revealer Podcast with music by Kevin McLeod and production editing by Anna Donch. If you want to get in touch with us, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at therevealerpodcast at gmail.com and check us out at therevealer.org.